you ever think about in that um, doxology that we're telling the saints in heaven to praise God, along with the angels, they're probably saying, we need to be telling you to praise God. <sighs> we're doing it just fine up here. Um, we're in Genesis chapter 45 today. This is really the conclusion of the sermon that we uh, began last week in uh, chapter 44. I'm going to actually read the first 15 verses together right now. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud. So that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt." Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that his brothers talked with him. May God bless the reading of his holy word. <clears throat> your God knows the struggles of your heart. In his only begotten son, he has made a way for you to know unending joy in his holy presence. But he also understands very well the struggle in your heart to experience that joy. Joseph's brothers will struggle to experience the joy of reconciliation with Joseph. And I believe that their struggles in many ways parallel our own struggle to enjoy God's presence. 
And I think by laying out these struggles for us here in Genesis, God is declaring to you, I understand what's happening in your heart. There are two primary obstacles that must be overcome if we are to truly enjoy God. The first is the lingering fear that God is still angry with us. The second is the reality that our sin has terribly damaged either our life or the lives of those around us. You see, the evil of sin is that it destroys what is good. The worse the sin, the more terrible the destruction. And having your heart washed in the blood of the Lamb does not magically fix the destruction left in the wake of your sin. And as a Christian, God wants you to know the depths of your sin. And once you do begin to feel the utter wickedness of your sin, many of you will live with regret that your sin has either terribly hurt yourself or others around you. And how can you live in God's presence with joy when the carnage of your past sin is ever before your eyes? I have regrets. Most of my regrets center around whether my previous sins have hindered other people from knowing God. What regrets plague your heart? You see, Judah and his brothers have finally proven to Joseph that a genuine change has taken place in their hearts. They are now people with whom Joseph believes that he can enter into true fellowship. And in his joy, he can't even contain himself. In the first three verses, Joseph could not control himself. Before all those who stood by him, he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him. When Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. There's no shame in Joseph. He's probably never been that emotional in his life, and he's so full of joy, he's weeping, doesn't care really who hears him. He says to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? And then you get the reaction of his brothers, and it is dismay. Joseph is full of joy. Why is he full of joy? Because he knows that jealousy and hatred no longer rule in the hearts of his brothers. He is fully reconciled to them. He has no inhibitions. He is ready to be with them. He's ready to enjoy the fruit of that reconciliation. Yeah, he wants to be with his dad. He wants to experience life with his brother. But he really wants to be united and in fellowship with all of his brothers. And in the midst of this fullness of joy that, that Joseph has, the brothers are like shocked and dismayed and afraid. Now, we are not told exactly why they are dismayed. 
but I don't think it's difficult to guess. The most powerful man in Egypt, other than the Pharaoh himself, just happens to be the younger brother that you sold into slavery. You know you deserve God's wrath. You know you deserve Joseph's wrath. And you know that he has the power to deliver it. You're also petrified because all of your past sin, which you have acknowledged in your heart before God, I really think they have repented of that. They know that, that sense of repentance in their heart. But all of it's going to be made known even to their dad, Jacob. Maybe especially their dad. Does it not cringe your heart to think of all of your sin being exposed before the rest of the church? It makes me cringe a little bit. They have good reason to fear. And I believe this is very similar to our relationship with God. Joseph is their brother, but he's also in the position of Lord. And I think it very much parallels our relationship with God. God has done everything to cleanse you. He has put his spirit in you and given you a new heart to change you. But if most of us are honest, we still cringe in his presence. You feel the weight of your sin. It is a natural reaction to cower in the face of a holy God. Like the brothers, years of suppressed guilt often gush forth from our hearts. And what happens, you cannot experience dismay and joy at the same time. You can relate. Is there joy when you go before God in prayer? God wants you to know joy. He's like Joseph. He's ecstatic, weeping over us like the father and the prodigal son. But he also understands you and I will experience a lifelong battle to overcome our guilty fears. Now, certainly those fears will ebb and flow, but I believe they will not be completely eradicated until we see Jesus face to face. I do think that God wants us even now, though, to begin working on them. He wants you to overcome those fears. He wants you to experience joy in his presence even now. And I think he has given us Joseph to help us. Look at verse 4. Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Maybe the the first and most important way in which our fears are alleviated is hearing the voice of God saying to you, Come, come near. I want you near to me. Look at the gentle attitude of Joseph's call. Come near to me, please? Are you kidding me? He's the Lord of Egypt. He could have told his guards to just bring him here and stand him right, you know. He could have commanded. He actually says, come into my presence in a gentle way. 
At the same time, when he calls them into his presence, he doesn't ignore their sin, but actually faces the sin. I am Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. See how he's not ignoring the sin? This is what our culture does not understand. Our culture thinks, the world outside thinks, that the only way that you could ever be happy with someone is if you ignore their sin. So wrong. Joseph doesn't ignore their sin, but in spite of their sin, he still wants them in his presence. You see, your God has no problem saying to you, Peter, hello, I am the God that you have ignored. I am the God that you have denied and rebelled against and disobeyed. Please come near to me. That's your God. How often do we lightly pass over the multiple scriptures that in which God calls his people into their presence, into his presence. The entire book of Hebrews is devoted to having people come near to God. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near. The apostle John, who laid his head on the breast of Jesus, also understood how his heart would sometimes condemn him. 1 John 3, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. So when God tells you to come into his presence, you can't turn around and say, oh, if you really knew who I was, you would not call me into your presence. He knows it all. And he says, come. There's something that we have to believe in this call. King David, after his sin with Bathsheba and murdering of Bathsheba's husband, he cries out in Psalm 51, Purge me with the hyssop, and I will be clean. If you do it, God, I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. How do you remember David? Is he in your eyes the one whom God calls into his presence and declares to be clean? Or is he the one that has fallen short? The one who committed the sin of murder and adultery? How about those around you? Do you see who they are in Christ? Clean, new creatures? Or can you only see the sins that they have committed in the past? 2 Corinthians 5 says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. You know what that means? That means we regard them not according to who they are in Adam and their old past. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. You want to be able to start enjoying the joy of God uh, in your own heart? Practice looking at other people for who they are in Christ, rather than their past failures. 
And I guarantee you it will be easier to look at yourself that way. Every Sunday, we have a call to worship. Benji gave it to us today. That's not just Benji standing up there. It is an element of our worship in which God himself calls to his people and says, come near to me. I want you in my presence. When we have communion in just a little while, God will again be calling you, come near to me. You see, God understands your struggle. He wouldn't be saying all these things if it was just like, ah, oh, yeah, they, I told them I loved them, they should just come on in. He understands how difficult it is for his people to come to him with joy in their hearts. But that's not the only obstacle. That's not the only struggle. It's not just the guilt that you fear and feel, feel in his presence. There is another obstacle, and it is the obstacle of self-loathing because of the pain and the heartache and the damage that your sins have committed, have caused. Look at verses 5 to 8. Joseph says, do not be distressed. He can see the look on their faces. He knows they're distressed. Or angry with yourself. Hmm, that's an interesting statement. Well, why would they be angry with themselves? Well, because you sold me here, right? You sold me into Egypt and you basically ruined my life. That's basically what he's saying. You took away my, my friendship with my dad and my brother and all this. You basically sold me into slavery. Oh yeah, don't be too angry with yourself. What? And look at his answer. God sent me here. Verse 7, God sent me before you. Verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God has done this. This is a very challenging theology that I'm going to teach you. And just because I'm going to tell it to you, and I believe it with all my heart, does not mean that I have mastered it in my practice. <laughs> How do you live with the guilt of knowing that your sin has terribly damaged the life of somebody else? You see, the gospel is not just for little sins. It's for the largest of sins. What if you were the drunk driver who took the life of a father of a young family? How do you deal with that? What if you were the harsh and critical parent who scarred his children and turned them away from Christ? What if you were the mother who ended the life of your unborn child? What if you were the father who abandoned that same mother? What if you were the husband who committed adultery and now your children have abandoned the faith? I could go on. Sin hurts people. 
The brother's sin is not one that I have committed. I've not sold my brother into slavery. I may have wanted to do that at times, but I have not done that. But I have hurt the relationship of God between other people because I have sinned against them. You can ask me the numerous ways that I've done that. Joseph's brothers stole away some of the best years of his life. Think of the grief and hate and and bitterness that Jacob had to deal with thinking that his son was dead. Think about how Jacob wrestled to believe that his God was good and that his God was in control when he let his son get mangled by a lion. Joseph sees the dismay in his brother's eyes He knows the depths of their guilt and regret. He knows that he has been the brunt of their sin. He knows these things. And yet he says to them what? Don't be too angry with yourselves. He basically tells them that their sin has not shipwrecked the perfect plan of God. Joseph is teaching something that goes contrary to everything that we think about in life. And so you have to ask the question, is this just one instance? Is this the only place that this occurs, but it's not really true of regular life? You can debate that with me if you want, but I'm convinced that this is put in Scripture so that we could learn the principle. What is Joseph saying and what is he not saying? He's not saying that the brothers' actions were not evil. He is not even saying that they are not worthy of judgment. He's not even saying that their actions have not really hurt him. They have done great damage to Joseph. But what he is saying is that what they intended for evil, God intended for good. God didn't simply come behind this evil action and somehow clean it up and fix it. God was in the evil action intending it for good. The evil actions of the brothers did not supersede God's intention to do good. His plan of redemption for his people. I don't know how long it took Joseph to recognize this. I'm assuming it wasn't while he was rotting in prison. I think it was sometime later. And so I acknowledge that we struggle with this ourselves, and it's not something that you will just easily grab hold of, but it is what we need to hear. I don't know if there's a a more wretched and more evil action that could have been done in history than crucifying the Messiah probably the worst event ever. And when Peter is preaching to people who just weeks before said, crucify him, you know, the people that said, I want that guy dead, this is what he says. 
Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You didn't somehow trump God and thwart God's plan. Later on in chapter 4, it reads this. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The most evil act in history, crucifying the Son of God, did not overcome the perfect plan of God. It actually accomplished that plan. Now here's the challenge. Can you believe that your sin, as heinous as it might have been, And as destructive as it might have been, can you believe that your sin was also used in the perfect plan of God to carry out his will? I'm telling you, this is not easy stuff to accept. See, Joseph is telling his brothers the sovereign hand of God was involved. And in that way, it it takes a burden off of his brothers that they could not bear. Can you imagine getting to glory and thinking that your sin has ruined it for people? Somehow thwarted God's plan? Could you ever have joy in his presence if that were the case? I still wonder if my sin has discouraged people's faith in Christ that I care about. When you have an understanding of the destruction of your sin, you need to hear God's voice calling you into his presence. You need to hear his voice saying, don't be overly distraught and angry with yourself. Now, of course, if you haven't repented of your sin, you're in, you're in dire need of possible judgment. That should be terrible. But for the person who has come to God and repented of their sin, God is working to free them from burdens that they do not ha- cannot bear themselves. In order for Joseph to say these words, he has to believe them himself. Maybe you're not the perpetrator of the sin. Maybe the sin has been done against you. Joseph gets freed from bitterness and anger and helplessness and victimhood because he believes that his God is good 
And even though he doesn't understand all of the details of why he's been raked through the mud over many years, he believes that his God is good and that he has good intentions for every evil that has ever come upon him. That's hard. You don't come to that kind of thinking quickly or easily or without the Spirit's power. Now, we will all rejoice in it when we see God face to face in glory at the resurrection day. We'll all agree with that. (laughs) But while we're still here, it is hard. You don't get to heaven and just have a memory sweep. It is here and now that we believe Romans 8.28 and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those of you who have been hurt deeply, especially young people, Just know that God loves you in the midst of that. Know that bitterness and anger and holding on to it will not be a path to victory. Your God is in control. You may not understand it even when you get to glory fully, but he is good and he is in control. Now, the rest of this passage is actually looking forward a bit. It's the same two truths. But just know that Joseph tells his brothers, go get dad, bring the whole family down here. I am going to take care of you. Everything is going to be great. Now, I just told you that part of the lessons that we have to learn is that even when God rakes us through the mud through other people's sin, God is still good. And in this situation is a perfect example of this because God had told his people in Genesis 15, God said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and they will be slaves there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's what God said to Abraham. And you better bet that as Jacob's thinking, I'm going down to Egypt? Are you kidding? And here's what I want to tell you. Jacob and the brothers go down to Egypt trusting that God will provide for them. Listening to Joseph, it's the right thing to do even though that they know in their future will be more affliction. As your pastor... I cannot promise to you that there will not be affliction from this point to the end of your life. In fact, I can honestly promise you that it'll probably get worse as you get older. But you don't have to live in fear of that. Why? Because your God is in control of it. And your God will bring you out of it. And he will walk with you through it. That's why you don't have to fear it. 
That's why it doesn't have to control you and consume you. And you're always afraid of the next thing that might happen because you know that your God loves you. How do you know your God loves you? Because his son was willing to die in your place to take the wrath that was, should have been yours. And he didn't remain in the grave. He rose from the dead. So I can't guarantee you a life that will be free from affliction or the sins of other people. But I can tell you that God's covenant love will be with you every step of the way. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. In verses 14 and 15, we see the hope of all who come to God in repentance and faith. This is why we come to Jesus Verses 14 and 15. Joseph fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Some of you are not very emotional. Most of you are Presbyterians, so you don't like to show your emotions. Maybe you just weep inwardly. I don't know. But you weep because you're so happy. There's no one in the church that you're at odds with. Everyone is together. There's peace. There's joy. There's, there's, there's interaction. Everything that you hope would be here in this life and isn't, it will be on that day. You see, God is reconciled to you even right now. And he has untold riches in store for all of his people. We struggle along believing that while we're still experiencing heartache and sin and affliction and oppression and all these things in our lives. It doesn't change what is going to happen. Can you imagine running into the arms of Jesus and him weeping over you? It's going to be a good day. It's going to be a good day. Father, I pray that you would be merciful to your people. I know that there are people in this congregation that have been hurt, those who have hurt others. Only your gospel can give us hope in these situations. Thank you for calling us into your presence. And as we enjoy communion and here in just a moment, help us to truly come to you not just go through the motions, but to know that it is you who are calling us near to yourself. Calvin called communion the kiss of Christ. May you kiss us with your joy as we draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen.